series. My name is Matt, as always, coming from Austin, and in Houston, my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken! Peace and long life. And there we go. We are back for another awesome and epic adventure of Star Trek, the original series, Galileo 7, which ranks pretty high on a lot of people's lists out there on the internet. If you look it up, uh, Galileo 7 it's cool because it's not even uh, not just a great episode, but we get a lot of new stuff that we had not seen in Trek before. Uh, most importantly, we get this new cool dynamic between Bones and Spock, where we don't have Kirk in the middle to sort of you know referee the two of them. Uh, also, Spock learns something in this episode. You know, you can almost hear the. Uh, <laughs> you can almost hear the commercial for it on uh, today's very special episode of Star Trek, the original series. Spock learns that sometimes he is not always right and might even be wrong. So with that fun introduction out of the way, let's just get to it here. Oliver Crawford was the guy who had uh, originally written this episode, and it was his idea to base it on a movie uh, that starred someone near and dear to Desilu's heart. So, uh, Ken, why don't you take this one? Sure, yeah. 1939, before the, uh, the Hollywood blacklist, you have Dalton Trumbo writing uh, kind of a parable of idyllic communism for our cast. You have a plane trip to Panama. Some people are trying to uh, escape the and and so communism always kind of posits the hell of the present world and some heaven future utopia and so the the idea here is that in 1929 you had a market crash but here we're going to have a plane crash and they're going to separate the old world from the new and so you have these characters one of whom uh, the loose woman is played by Lucille Ball, and they're flying to Panama. A storm, so here's our first element, a storm damages our plane, forcing it to crash. Dun, dun, dun. On the surface, or on the ground, <laughs> a, uh, a new society is formed, and all the people who were kind of cast-outs in the old society form a new happy society, in which they get to work fixing the plane, um, opening up a runway so that they can move on to the, into the happy future. Whereas the members of the old society, especially the um, young rich guy and the policeman, refuse to join this new society. They don't participate. They don't join in, and uh, they're 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 
they're diff they're problems. They're problem characters. They're the villains. Um, in addition, you've got some local headhunters who are you know trying to uh, shoot poison darts and and kill our cast members or our characters. I guess the cast members are okay. Although there is a scene where uh, spiders were dropped and they got in, in Lucy's hair and she <laughs> ran off the, the set. <laughs> this, by the way, was filmed on the set of the King of King Kong. Oh, of course. Um, done by Ar RKO Pictures. Yep. Uh, in lots of ways, this is the precursor of the disaster movie. So movies like, you know, Airplane, uh, Towering Inferno, The Poseidon Adventure are all kind of uh, owe something to this picture as our first kind of disaster picture. Although that wasn't a thing at this time. So they're breaking new ground. So we have a story about nine people who crash. Some people don't make it out. Um, in fact, some people had to be left behind. So here's kind of our second element. Some people have to be left behind. And the leftist radical takes it upon himself to choose who gets to stay and who gets to go. So he's imposing his, his uh, left-wing vision. Although you also have this professor who had uh, kind of rekindled his romance with his wife during this. And he's old or he and his wife are old, and so they volunteer for the good of everyone else to stay behind. So here's our two people who don't make it. Uh, you have some people who die, and then, of course, five came back. So there's our, our title of the movie. So in a lot of ways, it's, it's very similar to what happens in Galileo 7. You have a, a storm, causes a crash. You've got some hostile natives. There's a question of who stays and who goes. Does everyone make it out? Some people die, which kind of solves some of the problem. And then they have to rebuild or, or fix their craft and get back aloft. Which, oddly enough, sounds strangely familiar. <laughs> so taking these ideas, uh, Oliver Crawford originally set uh, Captain Kirk to be one of the ones who goes down. And uh, back on the... <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and back on the ship were Spock, McCoy, and Scotty. So it's kind of a bunch of nobodies. Maybe he threw in Sulu there. I uh, never got any information on that per se. But uh, so there's Kirk, you know, with almost a bunch of nobodies down on the planet trying to, as opposed to what the show later becomes, of course, is much more of a, uh, a look at, you know, the Spock character and certainly more so the Spock and McCoy relationship. Uh, NBC, when they read this uh, treatment, loved it. Of course, they were saying, you know, the action-adventure part of this is everything that we've been promising. We're on a hostile world. You know, there's, you know, mutant creatures. Like, this is exciting. We really wanted to do this. And we kind of don't care how much... Uh, it's going to be or how long it's going to take. Uh, the problem was is that Desi Lu said the complete opposite to that. Uh, they were like, nah, this sounds like this is going to need a lot of money. So they even shelved this script for a while because uh, they weren't sure how they were going to come about with the $12,000, which is what Jeffries himself uh, estimated the cost of building that model was going to be. So you're watching the uh, the remastered. 
I saw shots of the shuttlecraft one that were obviously CGI. Yep. In the sense that the thing lifts off and flies rather than dangles from strings or or is propelled off or like, you know, kicked by a guy who's off screen or yep. any of the other things they might use to make the thing shoot out. No. In, instead, it, it looks like the shuttlecraft, right? right? It looks like what we've seen um, from later, much. Uh, it looks like next generation. Days. Yeah, it looks like next generation. Um, we get lots of beautiful shots of the shuttlecraft. I don't remember any of these shots, so nope. I think they're all new. Uh huh. Yeah, the remastered ones are. Well, it's funny because I, I should have figured. You know, before launching into this great series like we are, that everything's been covered that you could possibly want to see on YouTube. So sure enough, there are side-by-side -side comparisons that you can go on and find on YouTube. And some of them are uh, quite astounding, <laughs> you know? Obviously, you look at this episode and you're like, surely this was not how they filmed these episodes back in the day. So, for instance, you know, the shuttlecraft taking off. It, you know, in this one, you see it in the remastered version, you see it on the turntable, right? The camera moves in on it. It, like, sort of does a little wobble as it lifts off and then takes off. And then we see this amazing shot from the back of the Enterprise as it comes out of the Enterprise and flies away. Well, in the original version of this, you see the turntable go. There's no camera movement, so it's just one steady shot of the, of the turntable. And then it lifts up perfectly and then just, you know, takes off. And then you, there's just a shot from in space, not from the rear shot of the Enterprise. There's just a shot in space of it taking off. And, of course, it's very wobbly and it doesn't look great. But for the 60s, of course, I'm sure people were blown away by the special effects. By what, by what you mean, like dangling mm -hmm. from strings? Well, you know, again, if we, as we've talked before, watching it through, you know, a little bit of static that's on the TV, not quite having, you know, <laughs> probably... A hundred pixels <laughs> per inch or whatever, you know, whatever <laughs> old TV had, you know, I'm sure a lot of this stuff looked way better than it does being able to watch it on our, you know, high depth screens and whatnot. Yeah, well, there's both the technical question of how good the shots look. And then there's also the question of what did you expect? You know, so like what had you, what else had you seen? Even, you know, if the best stuff you were going to see was in movies. You know, what had you seen in movies that would make you go, oh, this is just, this television right. is awful. As opposed to, it looks like everything else yep, I ever exactly. seen. Exactly. Well, I mean, even, even still going back to King Kong, you know, there's still, you know, even 30 years later, I'm sure there are still parts of that movie King Kong that look spectacular to, you know, people. Even though today it looks very stop motion-y, claymation-y, you know. I saw it as a kid. I, you know, I, I, so my bank encouraged, you know, kids to save every time you made a deposit, you would get these, these like extra fake dollars. Uh huh. And then you could use them for things. And one of the things that I used some of my, uh, you know, dollars that I got for making deposits was I went to see a movie at the bank in the bottom of the bank. Uh huh. In which they showed King Kong, and there were like I don't know two dozen kids there, and they had popcorn that you could buy again with bank dollars. Yeah. And so I I went to this movie, and I like you know bought some snacks, and I watched, you know the old King Kong, and I liked it. I also I also watched the, the old Fly that way. 
Oh, yeah, the Vincent Price one. Yeah. So uh, NBC, of course, really wanting this episode. Uh, finally, Roddenberry gets it up again and tries to figure out how he's going to make this on the cheap, right? Because that's always the problem that they're having these days. So uh, enter AMT Model Company. Uh, they really wanted to uh, get the rights to do a model of the Enterprise. And uh, when they heard about the shuttlecraft, they're like, oh, we got to do the shuttlecraft too. So what they decided to do is actually front the money for the cost of building the shuttlecraft. And again... In exchange for the rights. In exchange for the rights, the exclusive rights. Ah, very clever. Yes, absolutely. So, unfortunately, uh, so they built three different models. They built the big set model, then they built the interiors of the shuttlecraft, and then they also built the little model that they ended up using on in all the optical shots. Uh, unfortunately, the total cost of this was about twice what they were expecting it to be. It ended up being about $24,000 in 1964 money. So you can imagine what that would be about now, 120-something thousand. Again, Roddenberry trying to pull his little crafty moves of trying to make the original writer write an extra draft for them ends up, uh, again, not getting his way. And so they brought back, they brought back Simon Winselberg, uh, who did Dagger on the Mind, to come back and do a polish on this. Uh, he's the one who uh, changed a lot of the story. Robert Justman, who was, you know, our regular line producer guy, he's the guy who's worried about the money and what scenes are going to cost and what, obviously he was very worried about how they were going to get the shuttlecraft taken care of in this one. Uh, so that worked itself out. But a lot of times he started lending in uh, story stuff into this, into his notes, that really then helped the writers later. For instance, he thought at one point to help expand the story that maybe they could show Spock beaming down with a landing party and then basically running into the problems that we see in the final draft. Of, you know, people aren't taking him seriously. Somebody dies, his reaction to it. So that was Robert Justman's idea. Uh, so Simon Winselberg took that idea. He's also the guy who, had, who added, uh, you know, Commissioner Ferris to help us with the ticking clock situation. So uh, a lot of different minds went into working out uh, this script, which of course probably goes on to what make you know helps make it one of the best episodes of the original series. So the uh, twenty-four thousand dollars in nineteen sixty-six would be one hundred eighty thousand dollars today. Oh wow! Well, there you go. That's crazy. You can imagine. <laughs> you can imagine they probably spent more than they were expecting. Um. Although they probably got back more than they were expecting, too. That's probably true. Star Trek Plenty toys? kids probably bought those models. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a few more things. Standard and practice came into play yet again in this episode. Uh, the two things that they really were uh, worried about the most were uh, when Spock gets 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 hit. That they, you know, in the script that mentions his green blood, blah, blah, but standard practice was like, let's even even though it's green, let's keep it a little on the, you know. On the subtle side, of course, it doesn't even play. I think <laughs> at, at all. Uh, the other question was that, or the other point is that they never wanted us to see the monster space because, again, the way the script was describing the monster space, blah blah blah. So actually, I didn't even notice this until I read the book. But if you think back, you never see the monster space. You only ever see the monster from behind. And that's although I, I could I could have gone with a little less monster. Well. I mean, the monster, you know, <laughs> again, the monster ends up being a little bit ridiculous because it's clearly not as tall as they keep making them out to be. Uh, you know, it's clearly some, like, seven-foot guy who's in a, you know, 
I don't even know what you'd call it, like a, you know, a bear skin or something, yeah. you know. So, yes, it doesn't work. And not only that, but the script kept calling for, like, and they even say, you know, oh, there's five or six of them out there, and yet we only ever see one. Uh, yeah, you know, so we've got the, you know, what Spielberg does with the shark and Jaws, right. again, for technical reasons, was to, uh, you know, go Hitchcock and to, to keep the, the menace off screen. Right. And I, I think it probably would have been a little bit scarier if uh, we never saw it. Definitely. Definitely true. You're probably right. Although some of those scenes of them just like throwing spears onto the set doesn't exactly play well either, but... Yeah. Well, and part of that's because it's almost like those guys are tossing the spears. You know, those... those and you really don't necessarily want you know, spears being thrusted cast members at high velocity kind of a thing. Well, that's probably true. But uh, the fact that those spears are tossed, <laughs> you know, kind of yes, exactly. undermines the menace. <laughs> that's true. They're not really thrown with precision or very hard. Yeah. Uh, just to get into a couple of the cast members really quick, there's a really interesting story uh, from behind the scenes. Uh, Don Marshall was the guy who uh, plays Lieutenant Boma in the uh, in the episode, starred in uh, Ron Barry's episode of The Lieutenant that also co-starred Dennis Hopper and Michelle Nichols. Uh, he had done a lot of TV, and at one point his agents told him, um, <clears throat> sent him on uh, to a show called The Dactary, which I've never heard of. But he was supposed to be the second lead in it. But he didn't really enjoy the show. He didn't really like it. And so he kind of kept telling them, I don't really want to do this. And they're like, just go, just do it. Just don't sign the contract when the time comes. Well, of course, four episodes in, they're like, you got to sign this contract. And he's like, I don't even want to do this thing anymore. So the next thing he knows, he's blackballed from Hollywood because he's, you know, taking this job. You know, he's taking this job and then he wouldn't do it. So he calls up Roddenberry and he's like, Gene, can you try and get me on one of your episodes? See if I've been blackballed. And sure enough. Roddenberry comes back and says, like, hey, man, sorry to tell you. This is what's happened. So um, so Gene's like, tell you what to do. Uh, you know, just go out there by yourself. Try and get a, a job on your own. Get your name in the trades. And once you get your name back in the trades, then people will start hiring you again. So sure enough, he gets a slot on a Mission Impossible episode. And then Roddenberry casts him in this episode. And the next thing you know, he works for the next 20 years. So... Thought that was a little interesting behind-the-scenes story there. Uh, the last one is uh, Phyllis Douglas, who plays Yeoman Mears in this episode. Obviously, she replaced who would have been Rand in this episode, of course. But uh, her interesting claim to fame is that she played little Bonnie Butler in Gone with the Wind. So it's always funny when you get these like people who have been attached to big other important you know, movies of the past. Well, that's all I got for the behind-the-scenes stuff of this episode. I say at this point, we launch into the we launch Galileo Seven. <laughs> Shuttlecraft ready to depart. Captain's log, starting. It's five-year mission. Start date: two eight two one point three. Now this is interesting. The start date because some time has passed, obviously, from uh, from our uh, original time. Uh, if we go back to the Man Trap, which of course is the first aired episode, the start date on that episode was one five one three. So uh, we've had a good chunk of time pass uh, between those first 
few episodes and uh, here, so that's pretty interesting. Although we've we've spent a lot of time just before getting to three thousand. Well, you know, I'm sure there was a lot of flying too. Not all of that was interesting adventures. I'm sure there was just a lot of well, right. we're on our way. It's going to be two weeks to get us from here to here. But I think if we looked at the numbers, we'd get a lot, of, a lot of two sevens, two eights, two nines. You mean in the next couple, in the next couple seasons? In the past, uh, we only have, I don't know, three. There's like three or four that are around fifteen. We've got and then there's like a big gap. Two that are, at and then 15. then we're like at yeah two. And then we seem to be all around like twenty, you know, twenty seven, twenty eight, yeah. twenty nine. Well, and the star dates play a big role in this in this episode too. They're constantly talking star dates. So their yeah. uh, so their mission on this one is they're taking some uh, needed medicine to a planet to uh, you know get this medicine there. There's a plague going on, but apparently it's only to a although key to the plot. Yeah, it's right. a rendezvous. Rendezvous, exactly. That's where I was going next. So so there's no point in being early, right? So they've got a little time to do some. Mandated, by the way, scientific study on uh, Mursaki 312 here, this quasar. Uh, again, looking at the well, shots, the remastered shots and the original shots. In the original version, this just looks like a, a big blue cloud. That's all it looks like. Where, right. obviously, in the remastered version, this looks a lot more specific. It does. So, they call this thing a quasar. And... Back in 1966, I don't know the state of the astronomical sciences. Right. But certainly uh, what they know in terms of the script writing is that it's a huge radio disturbance. Right. So there's some kind of electromagnetic disturbances going on. It will affect the ship, knocking out its sensors and some other systems. And it will cause the shuttlecraft to crash. What we know about quasars is that they are giant black holes surrounded by gas and as the gas falls in they create this giant electromagnetic disturbance so they're often associated with with small new galaxies so we get a lot of quasar formation you know back around uh, you know like 12 13 billion years ago and then you you get uh, um, you know some local quasars that are more like uh, two billion years old. So wait, hold on. Let me uh, let me clarify something. So it it forms a black hole. It's a black hole that's that a bunch of matter is falling into it. Okay. And as the matter falls in, you get all this this energy discharge. Oh, okay. Which produce which produces this elect electromagnetic uh, stuff that we see. Okay. So it would it then and be so, impossible for there to be a planetoid in the middle of it? Yeah, because it'd be a black hole. <laughs> exactly. Okay, that's where I was going. Sorry, I wanted clarification so on that one. Yeah, their understanding of what a quasar is is all they really know is that it sends out a lot of radio right. signals. Boy, we're getting a lot of data from this thing. Because probably in the and, 60s uh, they were getting a lot of that. They were reading a lot of that. Yeah, they're like, oh, we're finding these things that send out radio signals. It's crazy. I wonder what they are. And it seems like in the show... It's a normal star system with a star that sends off all this electromagnetic stuff. Whereas to us, the you know the term quasar really suggests something else: black holes, 
So, you know, uh, it's one of the things that, that you have to kind of look past when you watch the episode that, uh, that they were speculating about what the science meant in 1966. And we have a much better grasp on the science. And we're like, that's not a quasar. Well, you know, it's even as much as like we keep finding out more and more about space. It's possible in, you know, 10 years we're going to be like, hey, we're kind of wrong about those quasar things. Very possible. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of things that, that if you were to make Star Trek right now, let's say Discovery, that, you know, 40 years later you'll be watching these things like, oh, I can't believe they thought string theory worked that way. Those people are ridiculous. Right, exactly. <laughs> Sheldon Cooper will be uh, very happy to find that they've solved string theory. But uh, at, at least it won't be uh, polarizing the neutron flow. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> So also on board, we have Galactic High Commissioner Thoris. Uh, I know that he, he was established to be a, uh, you know, they say he was uh, established to be somebody who is higher than Kirk, you know, uh, maybe a Federation type or something. But again, right. we have no, it's still amorphous, whatever, you know, the Galactic Central Station or whatever it was they called it a few episodes ago. So we still don't know what the Federation Space Central? Is. Yeah, Space Central, right, exactly. Uh, so, you know, it's funny because we mentioned, you know, many episodes ago in the cage how their outfits looked to uh, Enterprise. Well, what about Commissioner Thoris's man? That looks like it's right out of Enterprise. Except for that cape. I don't remember uh, Scott Bakula wearing a cape like that. But... <laughs> Well, yeah. perhaps if we go back and, and do some very slow-mo um, reviews of his quarters, we may find that it's just <laughs> right, exactly. all the time. That he never actually wears it, but that he's got one. <laughs> he wears it for special occasions. <laughs> I don't know what those are, but that. So, because yeah, he doesn't wear it in the finale when they're forming Federation. That's my point. Like, I don't know what exactly... What you those think, special occasions are. If there's ever a time for a formal uniform, that's it. So Thoris is pissed because he doesn't like this delay getting the medicine to the planet. Kirk says, sorry, standing orders. So, you know, lots of reviewers watch this and think, this guy's a jerk, right? And I watch this, and I see something entirely different. Um, so let's assume that this guy has been around the block before. And instead of just being a jerk, he's rather a guy who's been in this exact situation many times before. And he's like, well, we've got this emergency. We've got to go you know, deliver these medical supplies. And you want to engage in science in space, which is dangerous, which means things are going to go over schedule. They're going to be more difficult than you thought they were going to be. They're going to require more resources, more time, more whatever. And we don't have a margin for that, right? If this turns out to take longer than you think it will, if it'll you know, consume more resources, you know, we're putting lives in jeopardy. And the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. So you need to put this on hold because of this other thing. I've, I've been through this before. You guys want to do your science, and then it ends up taking longer than you thought it would. Not a good situation. Leave this alone. Let's go do what we got to do. If nothing else, they're going to find something else that needs and, more studying. You know, so it's like, well, we can't leave now. We just found out right. this new thing. 
Yeah, and, and it only is happening right now. And we're the only ship in the area. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of view him as a guy who's who's been through this before, and his only concern is the plague. You know, science is beautiful, but you guys need to come back here and do this another time. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really see him. I mean, he's kind of a jerk just because he's a jerk. But, you know, I mean, I, I, I kind of understood his job, right? His job is like, man, we got to get this medicine. People are dying. Right. This is our only chance to make this rendezvous. We got to make this rendezvous. These people in New Paris are dying. We've got to get them there. So here's a question. So is he? So there's like multiple reasons we could think he's a jerk, right? One might be he's actually a jerk. Uh, number two might be we don't fully understand why this bothers him because we haven't had previous missions delayed because someone thought, well, I'm just going to do a little science here. It's just going to take a few minutes. Oh, sorry, hours later, yeah, you're delayed and your stuff doesn't get done. And then, uh, you know, a third possibility is, we'll use a, a you know, a Myers-Briggs reasoning, that they're using two different kinds of judging functions or learning functions. And, you know, if, if we think that uh, the high commissioner is, let's say, an introverted thinker, which means that, all the thinking needs to make sense to him. Whereas, let's say Kirk is an extroverted thinker who's trying to organize everybody else. That they're going to clash over that conflict in the way they're thinking. You know, one explanation would be that they've got um, two different kinds of, of functions. The thinking functions. Um, the difference between extrovert and introverted thinking functions is that one is trying to organize the exterior world and one is trying to organize the interior world. And they often will clash because they're they're going about things differently. I think I mentioned before that uh, the physicist Fenneman invented his own way of doing math because it had to make sense to him. Well, obviously, if he was going to explain that to somebody else, they're going to say, you're doing that wrong. That's not how you do that math, even though you're getting the right answer and so forth. And so that's one possible explanation. And I offer that one because we're going to see a lot of that kind of problem here in this episode. So New Paris is where they're headed with these uh, on Talus 3, I believe is what it was. So we got three days. It takes three days to get to the beating place. And we got five days before their rendezvous. So we got two days, basically, of fooling around, messing around on the, on the, on the quasar here. But that also establishes, of course, our ticking clock. So uh, we got Spock on the shuttlecraft. He's going to be the one flying their way there. Uh, Scotty and McCoy are also on board. You got like three, three of the top officers. Th three out of the four are there. You see, you've got a commander, Spock, and two lieutenant commanders. You've got three department heads. So you got like. So on board the shuttlecraft from a next generation yeah. point is Riker, uh, Worf, probably, uh, Jordy, and Crusher. Yeah, Cr yeah exactly. Crusher. Yeah, you've you, you got, you got a lot of people on this. And uh, part of it's because we need to know who they are. The, the story would be less interesting if it was Spock 
Bomer and like some other people who we've never met before. Then then it it would feel much more like just a bunch of insubordinate. Who are these lieutenants telling Commander Spock? You know, this, that, or the other thing. And in in fact, when things start going awry in terms of the crew's morale, I think McCoy plays a an important role in setting things on the wrong course. Wait, what was that? So if it weren't for the fact that McCoy, yes. who himself is a lieutenant commander, yes. head of life sciences division, if he wasn't willing to badmouth Spock in front of the junior officers. So Bomer makes the comment, uh, when they were putting his head together, they messed something up. And then McCoy says, not his head, his heart. And so what he's doing is he's basically validating I gotcha. I got, I the complaint against Spock. And if you, so if you didn't have a department head, you know, doing that, if you just had a bunch of lieutenants grumbling themselves, I think audience sympathy would have been entirely with Spock, who, as as the commander, is yeah. the only you know obvious ranking officer, as the only character who we knew and had any investment with. You just go, who are these these idiotic junior officers, and what's their problem? They need to get in line. Exactly. Those, we should hang them all. <laughs> but because it's McCoy, and we like McCoy, and McCoy's, you know, a good guy and so forth. When we see this conflict, we're like, oh, no. it's the Spock McCoy conflict, and we accept it. So uh, we uh, lose communications. Uh, Bowman tells us they are extremely that uh, Quasars are extremely disruptive. Extremely disruptive. Uh, so Spock says, "Hey, why don't we stop forward momentum?" And then the guy has to turn around, like behind, like all the way, like, "Hey, I'm I gonna get that switch for you." It seemed like the worst <laughs> place to put that switch. Like, shouldn't it be on the control I what that switch in was. front of you? I mean, wouldn't that make more sense? Yeah. So, I mean, I. I don't know what that switch is. For all we know, and of course we don't know anything because nobody, you know, none of these switches are labeled and nobody says right. what they're doing. You know, he could have done something else to dial back the power and then be like, feels kind of unstable. Let me uh, put some auxiliary power to the inertial dampeners. Right. You know, and... But yeah, I mean, what's he doing back there? <laughs> I don't know. It's very weird. It is. So, uh, so they find that they're being drawn right into the quasar. They are extremely disruptive, after all. So uh, we find ourselves in trouble, and now they're lost. Kirk has to try and find them, and he says finding them would be like finding a needle in a haystack. Wait, sorry, screwed up that line. Finding <laughs> finding a needle in a haystack would be child's play compared to this. Dun dun dun! Credits. Well, I think uh, the real problem here is that they've got no sensors, right? Yeah, yeah, nobody has sensors. Yeah, so, so back sensors to you. have been knocked out. Right. So what are we going to do? Are we going to bump into them? I mean, they... Basically, that's what sensors. he tries to do later. He's like, I'm going to send as many guys to the planet as I can. I'm going to make big circles. Hopefully you bump into them. I mean, that's really what he ends up going on. Uh, start day 2821.7, so a fourth of a day is, uh, gone by, no, more than a fourth of a day, I just figured how this breaks down. Yeah, no, that's right, a fourth of a day. So, Thoris, this guy, Commissioner Thoris, 
Thor. No, I guess it's Ferris, but I thought it was Thor's. <laughs> I'm gonna call him <laughs> Thor's anyway. Ferris. I like that. Yeah, I like Thoris better. It sounds like a dwarf from Lord of the Rings or something, you know? <laughs> Son of Thoris. Thoris anyway. will meet us with a thousand axes. <laughs> exactly. Uh, get the medicine to those people. So, anyway, he's complaining with, like, almost little regard for the lost crewmates, you know? He kind of says, like, I'm sorry about your crewmates, but I kind of told you this is going to happen at the same time. Uh, Uhura comes through with the info that they may have landed on Taurus 2. Oh, that's where Taurus is. Yeah, so they made a land on Taurus 2. On a planet. And we see now that all seven of them have made it. We got a little bloody nose, we got a bump on the head, but nothing too major. Spock must be one heck of a pilot to be able to land that ship so well. Uh, they attempt to call the ship, uh, but of course there's no luck. Scotty sets to immediately trying to fix the shuttlecraft. Of course, because what else is he going to do to keep his... Uh, <laughs> Spock gets to business while taking sarcasm constantly from Bones. Well, yeah, I would say that uh, the air quality is fun. Call this a summer resort. Thank you. Your analysis is duly noted. Transporter. <laughs> so then, uh, back on the ship. Uh, so let, let's let's point out the. Uh, so at this point, McCoy is just being McCoy, right? Right. And McCoy likes to interject his analysis with these little flavorful comments. <laughs> yes. And it is well, annoying Spock. You know? Right, because what Spock is looking for here is, um, you know, accuracy, efficiency, you know, just the facts. You know, why are Which you... even says. Why are you polluting my facts with these asides? Right. How do you reason that way? So he's like, yeah, how do you reason that way? You know, polluting your facts with these emotional... Ken, it's really easy to get to the McDonald's. You just go down the street and then you make a left at the Wendy's. Why is that so hard? What's the name of the street? I don't know the name of the street. It's just by the Wendy's. I go down there, I see the Wendy's, and I turn. That's where it is. Well, this, interestingly enough, is the NS problem. <laughs> Not the uh, TF problem. <laughs> oh, fair, fair, fair. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a functioning problem. So uh, back on the ship, uh, Kirk calls down to the uh, transporter room. He says, transporter room, this is the captain. I was like, did he really have to make that announcement? I think that they probably knew it was him. Anyway, we find out that the transporter <laughs> isn't working either. It's, you know, they're, they're like, hey, we're sending stuff down and it's coming up messed up. We definitely don't want to try this with humans. Kirk says that he will continue to search for his crewmate, his crewmates until the last possible moment. He even gives the start aid there. They end up launching the second shuttlecraft. The Copernicus. Yes, Copernicus, trying to uh, find do some loops around the planet. Uh, again, the difference here between the original optics and the you know remastered optics. In the original optics, they literally used the same footage that they showed us before and just uh, replayed that. Whereas at least this side way, we sort of get this like back shot or shot towards the back of the Enterprise and we see the, the shuttlecraft fly out this way. It's beautiful stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's really great. Uh, Bones confronts Spock about his command and perhaps his enjoyment now of having it. Spock says, while command does hold its fascination, I do not enjoy it, nor am I afraid of it. It just simply is. 
Low on fuel, Scott tells Spock that they need to lose about 500 pounds to get escape velocity. The weight of three men, says Spock. The crew becomes quickly indignant. Oh, well, who's going to choose the three men? Spock says he will. Bowman says, well, why can't we just, like, draw lots? And Spock says, because I think I am more qualified to make this choice than the, by a random chance of lots. <clears throat> Which is then when Bones says that line that you mentioned earlier. It's not his head, it's his heart. So here we have this guy who's... I, I don't know where he's from. He's wearing blue, so he's a science guy. He seemed to know a lot about quasars early on when that was relevant information. You'd think he's in the in the astronomy field, and yet... That'd be a good guess. You know, he, he feels like he's a guy who's unaccustomed to a Spock-like figure, hmm. right? And so there's two possible explanations. One is that he is uh, an F-functioning scientist, right? That's perfectly reasonable. Makes sense. Bones. Um, but who has never in his career come into frequent contact with T scientists, which would have to be really, really odd because T's <laughs> like to do science. Truth. Uh, F's typically are drawn to, um, you know, other academic fields like the humanities. Psychology. You know, so while it's not odd to find an F scientist, it would be odd to find one who's never encountered teased before and it's like you're doing it wrong <laughs> who are you what is this why why are you treating people as objects why are you being cold and objective when you should be warm and compassionate because yeah in the sciences especially if you're dealing with astronomy where everything is an object that should be a familiar thing. So that's a difficult explanation, right? You have to you have to imagine like a bizarre career path. The other explanation is that he's got some bad blood with Spock. That like McCoy, he's found Spock difficult in the past, and there's a history that we're just not privy to. Which is, I think, bad narrative to like have a history that we never mention. But without it, it's difficult to imagine why lieutenants are complaining about the second command of the ship. Fair point. I mean, you'd think that it, it, there'd be a certain amount of Starfleet deference to rank that you'd have to overcome before you started bad-mouthing Commander Spock. That's good Secondly, point. we, as the audience, we like Spock. So... That you know creates even a higher hurdle for this guy not to just be a pesky bug that you really ought to be stepping on. I do think, if we look at the series as a whole, both this series and Next Generation in terms of Data, who has the same problem, mm -hmm. there is, it takes a long time for people, and I include Kirk and McCoy in this, to get used to Spock. It takes a long time for people to get used to the odd functioning of data. And so one can imagine by the movie era, this kind of petty bickering over things. McCoy's not doing that anymore. He's not irritated by Spock being Spock. They'll have conflicts about stuff, but it won't be just like, 
you know, the, the way you describe your facts when you say the atmosphere is breathable is irritating to me. That stuff is all gone. There is a certain amount of trust and knowledge that will have accumulated over time. I think part of this is because Spock is an alien, right? This is, an, maybe this is in the minds of the, of the writers or Roddenberry that they're taking too much for granted. Spock is just weird. Everything Spock does is weird. It rubs everyone the wrong way because he's an alien. And so I wonder how much, you know, as an audience and watching this for the first time, you're just supposed to go, that Spock figure. He sure is odd, even though really he's just being the objective scientist who's probably also a philosophical stoic, which is not so unusual. We shouldn't look at those guys. It's like having George Washington, you know, as your commander, also going to be cold, distant, analytical, objectivizing. And we're supposed to go like, so for example, all these guys appear to me to be guardians, right? And as guardians, they're going to, their learning function is going to be memory. It's going to be their introverted sensing. And so they should be looking at things and going, well, how did this work in the past? So I'm going to skip ahead to like where the guys die, for example. And the and if you, you could have other guardians who are like, well, the conventional thing to do and therefore the appropriate thing to do the thing that i remember when other guys have died in the past is that we were compassionate we say a few words we we give the guy you know some memorial and we don't know what the vulcan conventional behavior for guys dying in an emergency situation on a strange hostile world is I can easily imagine the very logical Vulcans being, this is merely a, a you know, a, a, a physical object now. It no longer contains the Katra of, you know, this Vulcan. The, the Vulcan that we knew is not here in this physical physicality. It's, he's lost. And so there's no reason to pay particular attention to this physical body. We don't need to, you know, the Vulcans are also spiritual, so I really don't know what they would be doing. But it's certainly going to be the case that whatever it is, it's going to be different. It's going to feel wrong to the humans. And that Spock just is going to feel like what you humans are doing is unfamiliar. It's also the case that Spock rejects his human side. And so when humans are going about humaning, he'll be like, yeah, I'm not doing that. I'm not joining you in your humaning. I'm going to be over here being a Vulcan. And early on, I think that's a problem for Spock in terms of getting along with other characters. And I think later on, certainly by the movie era, by the time the movie era starts, he's already gone through the, the colonar. I think he's much, he's much more willing to let the humans human and, you know, to not be like, I must reject the human, must reject it. He's like, I'm okay with the human now, whatever. I'm not going to do it but I'm not going to like reject it or push it away or pretend I don't see it or comment about how goofy you are humaning, which he still does a lot right now. So these are my, this is the stuff that's for me, that's floating around in the background about why this interpersonal activity goes so awry. I mean, this is basically a mutiny situation. 
And it wouldn't surprise me if everyone who came back was basically court-martialed, except for Scott, who is invisible. He's basically invisible in the episode. And maybe the ensign, the I mean the yeoman, who aside from saying, we need some inspiration, was otherwise not, not a very mutinous character. But I mean, I, I would have reprimanded McCoy and and basically maybe even demoted everybody else except for Spock. Like, you know, Spock's in charge. You do what he says. It's a life or death situation. You don't, like, complain. You guys are... Right? Yeah, exactly. I'm going to demote you, transfer you away. I'm going to screw your record. You guys basically just get out of, Star Trek, out of Starfleet. So we cut to the two other guards who were on the planet. They were sort of left to go uh, patrol the planet. And uh, it's funny here because they uh, start walking towards mist, which I automatically, automatically think is always a bad idea. And then there's like that giant snarling sound. I think it's snarling, but then they later describe it as like fabric brushing against wood. I'm like, I don't think that that's what it was supposed to be. But anyway, I'm just saying, strange, uh, strange mist, weird planet, snarling, I don't think anybody's supposed to be going that way. And then they decide that they need to uh, get the heck out of Dodge. And what happens? Boom, a giant spear is thrown at them and lands in the, lands in one, uh, gets one in the back. Uh, the other crew starts, <laughs> the other crew members just starts randomly firing, you know, trying to hit something, hoping to hit something. So we sort of talked about this a little bit, but like, who exactly are these guys, right? Right. Like, they're just supposed to be on a shuttlecraft, going to look at a quasar, quark, whatever, and you get to an scientist, right? But then you got these two other guys in gold. Like, who are they supposed to be? And I'm sure that they were not in when... <laughs> I'm sure they did not uh, hang out in class in tactics like some of the other security uh, members might. Right, so they're not security guys. My guess would be they're like high-energy engineers, you know, the, like warp field, matter, antimatter, and they would have some kind of knowledge of, you know, when you're putting together the crew, well, who would who would understand what's going on in a quasar? How about those guys who run the warp drive? Yeah, yeah. They'd probably know. Let's get those high-energy engineers in there. They'll, they'll know all about these high-energy interactions. Let's put them... They'll be useful. Unless, of course, you have to fend off a bunch of 18 right, exactly. cavemen. Oh, by the way, this is an example of cavemen versus astronauts. <laughs> <laughs> well, look who's winning so far. One's down already. <laughs> I get to, like, so if these guys were in tactics, you know, if there was a class tactics, if they were in tactics that, like, the security guys were all about like learning and tactics and having a good time in there. These guys are probably bored, and vice versa. These guys are probably the security guys are probably bored in botany. You know what I mean? So they're both just like each had these classes that right. they're in where they're like, "This sucks." Anyway, I was just thinking that there must be a section of tactics where they talk about mist and how you should not enter it. I'm just saying. <laughs> or there's like there's like a, a mist procedure, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Bring a fan. Yeah, they're going to use the mist to their advantage. They're going to be aware right. of how the mist can be used against them. Exactly. I mean, it's such a sci-fi yeah, trope. Are, these are scientists and engineers. Yeah. These are scientists and engineers who are kind of being called on to do the work of tactical officers right now, and they don't do it terribly well. So we go to commercial on this note, one man down, right? Uh-oh, trouble. 
Uh, when we come back, we find out his name is Latimer, which is, uh, for all of you people who have watched Broadchurch, also know that that's the name of the kid who got killed in, <laughs> in Broadchurch. So that, it's just not good to be a Latimer on TV, apparently. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, it's funny. So you see the giant spear is, like, in his back. And it's a huge spear. I mean, it's giant. This is supposedly some kind of, like, giant ape man that we have apparently ran into. Uh, more, more drama entering into the script here, right? Not only are we stuck here, but now something's trying to kill us. A little more ticking clock going on. Okay, great. Now we got bad guys after us, too, with everything else that's going on. So uh, Spock comes into the scene. He picks up the spear. He looks at it, describes the spear in a very Earth-like way. And this just irks the other crewmen even more, right? Like, Yeah, so we get more of this this functioning, right? Right. So, you know, one of the great uses of Myers-Briggs is in workplace scenarios where people are just fighting for no reason. And, you know, I'm sure you've seen this at work. I've seen this at work where you're just going about your day and all of a sudden people start fighting and you're like, why are you guys fighting? This is weird. And it's often over stuff like this. Yeah. Right? The, the way someone describes, let's say, a customer service thing make somebody else go, ah, you're doing it wrong. You know, stop it. And, and there's this idea that you can like fix other people and that you, you should be using my functions, not your functions, which of course is impossible. You can't train people to, to you know, do this comfortably. And so, you know, one of the things that people need to learn to do is to understand other people's functions. And, and when you see it, you go, Oh, look, he's using those functions. Yeah, I, I don't like those. But, okay, that's who he is. He's got these other skills that are valuable here. And we just have to we have to accept this as part of that and not complain every time we see it. And, of course, these guys aren't doing that. Throughout this episode, you get all these, you know, Spock does his analysis of the, of the spear point, estimates their technology level. Later on, he'll, he'll say... That they're Useful not, information we should add. Yeah, that they're not tribal. They're probably, you know, of a simpler um, level of social organization based on this technology that he's observed. And, of course, they're, <laughs> it, it, it irritates people to see him doing this. So they're obviously not people using extroverted thinking or, or effectiveness high up in their stack. My concern for the dead does not change the fact says Spock. Perfect there. In fact, they're important to know. Mm -hmm. So uh, the two uh, the two crewmen decide, like, hey, we should bring the body back. Spock even even offers to help. And the crewmen are like, no, no, we got it. Thanks. Stardate 2822.3. Uh, Kirk says, uh, I find it more difficult to ward off futility. The drama rises again. Will Kirk find them before he gives up? Or is forced to, because we got we got Ferris still up there at the ticking clock. Back on the ship, we or back on the shuttlecraft, uh, they have found enough weight to only leave a single man behind. Now we got one man down. They got a bunch of other weight that they found they can get rid of, but still one man's going to need to stay behind. Bone says, I still can't believe... Well, although, realistically, so it's not like we're going to leave you here forever. Right. We'll come back with the ship and get right, you. It would be, yeah, I mean, once we get back up there and we don't have a damaged shuttlecraft anymore, we can send down like a half-full ship and pick you up and go back up. Exactly. 
Well, you know, what's funny, too, is actually I thought the way this was going to go was that Spock was going to be the one to leave himself behind. Right. That would be like, very Spock. logical that I would be the one. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Bones, of course, says, I can't believe that we're still talking about leaving a man behind. Spock says, uh, rationality says better one man than six. Bones says, I'm not talking about rationality. Spock says, the, then maybe you had better start. The needs of the many outweigh exactly. the needs of the few. Or the one. The crewman steps aboard to tell uh, Spock that it's time for the funeral. Funeral. Spock tries to pawn it off on McCoy, like, hey, you know, I'm sure you've got some great words that'll uh, go help this out. Uh, McCoy says, no, this is like your job. You have to do this. Uh, Spock stands his ground and remains fixing the shuttle. McCoy now is more miffed than ever. Yeah. Once again, you've got this situation where, yeah, okay, technically it should be the highest ranking guy who, who does this thing. But this is not in <laughs> Spock's wheelhouse. Let's 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 not ask Spock. It's like saying, uh, Captain uh, or you know Commander McCoy, you're the highest ranking officer here. You should tell us whether or not we should implement you know Scotty's uh, thing to, and Scotty be like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, w will the phasers recharge the fuel cells? I don't know. I I have no idea. All I can do is go. Well, Scotty suggested it. So the question, like, there's. People have to function within their wheelhouse, right? And rank is one indication of, of the wheelhouse, of who should be doing what. And so, you know, the highest ranking guy is probably the guy who should be saying something about the dead guy. But it's also not his specialty. In the same way that if it turned out that McCoy was the highest ranking guy, and Mr. Scott says, I think we can do this risky thing where we use the phasers to repower the ship, McCoy would not be in yep. a position to go, well, that's a good idea or a bad idea, or we should look for another alternative. He, he would either just have to go, well, my engineer says it wouldn't be in his wheelhouse. Whereas, at least for Mr. Spock, Mr. Scott says, you know, I think we can do this, this thing with the phasers and the power, and Mr. Science can go, seems like a plausible theory. You know, let's proceed. I don't see any better, you know, alternatives. He's, he's got the science knowledge to understand and move forward, but he doesn't have the interpersonal skills or the cultural knowledge to say the right things. I mean, he yeah. might get up there and say something very spiritual and meet and moving to all the Vulcan crew members who, frankly, total zero in this situation, and all the humans would be like, "What? What? Or what if we had the Klingons? You know?" So Worf gets up there and goes, <laughs> and the humans are like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> you told me to say a few words. Well, I'm, I'm crying out for my lost comrade. You're like, yeah, that's not what you do, dude. And so there's no appreciation that uh, he's he doesn't have the, the right skill set. He's got an alien context and isn't necessarily good at human funerals. And so the fact that McCoy says this is your job rather than going, you know what? I'm effectively second in command here. I mean, I don't know who outranks who. Scotty is third in command yeah. of the ship. So, uh, but McCoy has the same rank. They're both lieutenant commanders. And he's got all the interpersonal skills in the world here. Yeah. I mean, you can see Mr. Scott, who, you know, will tell us later in the episode Relics that all he wanted to be was an engineer. And he is quiet in this episode. He lets McCoy and Spock fight. He doesn't get involved. He, he just 
But there's scenes where he's just like looking down at the power thing yep. while they're fighting. And he does not want to be involved in this. Not my fight. Don't want to get involved. And, you know, that probably works really, really well on the Enterprise. Yeah. Where Kirk is there to play the role of the intermediary. And to to be the ego to the id and the superego and make this yeah. triangle work. But Kirk's not here. So part of what we have is a study of these this Spock-McCoy dynamic with Kirk removed. And it's not right, going so very well. With the third part of the triangle. Yeah, you need that third stool. The stool is falling over right now. And Mr. Scott is not willing to be that third stool. He either doesn't know how, doesn't want to do it. He's, in many ways, as the second second officer on the ship, we do have the one scene where he'll, he'll, he gets mad. He's like, I've had enough of this. Yes. Cut it out. Yes. Right. He begins to like pull rank and be like, you, you realize I'm a, like the chief engineer on the ship. Yeah. And you guys are acting completely inappropriately. <laughs> but, and, and he also has no problem with Spock. In fact, at no point in the series that I can remember does Spock's functioning and Scotty's functioning ever cause any kind of conflict. Right. These guys are, are working very smoothly together all the time. They're obviously using the same functions. Spock says, let's operationalize this problem. And, and you know, Scott's like, yes, operationalizing the problem sounds excellent. <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. And, you know, so he's he's not playing that role. He's quiet. He's letting the, the fighting going on, which is a problem. I mean, I... As, as the second officer on the ship, he really kind of needed to back up Spock, I think. And I think the reason he didn't do it is because this is, you know, Kirk has always fulfilled that role on the ship. And Mr. Scott's usually down in the engine room. It's not like he could even pull out some Kirk lines that everyone would go, oh, yeah, you're telling us to shut up now. Okay, we get it. Yeah. Well, not only that, too, but Scotty's probably, you know, very determined to get the hell off that planet. So, oh, yeah. Know, yeah he, he's so got that a, has a lot to do with it, too. He's got a really big problem to focus on. And worrying yeah. about babysitting, you know, this interpersonal exactly. conflict. You know, I'll let you all deal with this. Yeah. But at some point, you know, clearly it frustrates him. Yeah. <laughs> Why can't you guys work this out? But it is also, I mean, you can tell his anger is directed at the junior officer sniping you know it's one thing for for spock and mccoy to argue amongst themselves but for the junior officers to gang up on spock which is basically what they do yep is inappropriate so we cut ahead a few hours and we find out that uh, all the fuel has been drained apparently a pipe burst or something it's basically how they describe it and then suddenly bones runs in the eight men have returned are they tribal can we use it against them? Can we make them bleed if we, uh, you know, pop them in the head or whatever? <laughs> you know, like in Miri, Papa. Anyway, so Spock says, <laughs> I forget the low regard you Earthmen have for life. But the majority agree agrees. It seems logical. Spock says, I don't care about the majority, Mr. Quintano. There are components to right. weigh. The danger to ourselves as well as our duties to our other life forms, friendly or not. Now this seems very Trek. It does. Yeah. And it seems very Spock. And it seems... I have no idea how people would respond. How the audience would respond in 1966. I think today, we would look at that and go, Spock's totally in the right. 
know, there should be this high level of concern for collateral damage here. You know, they've, they've crash landed. Their mission here is not to cause mayhem. It's to keep themselves safe and then get out of there. And these guys are like, you know, we need to lay down some smack. We need to open a can of whoop ass. Yeah. We need to, you know, break some things and kill some people. Make them bleed. We, yeah, we need to think about our own safety at such a high level that anything that gets in the way of our safety needs to be destroyed. And Spock's like, you know, this is not our mission here. We have a third course. We will fire to frighten, not to kill, he says. The giant ape men, uh, the giant ape men throw a spear and it misses, and then they throw a shield at, at Spock, and that misses too. So uh, Spock has them fire at 10 and at 2 to scare the ape men away. It appears Spock was right after all. Spock and Bowman return to the ship, and Quintana is ordered to uh, stay behind. This is when Scotty comes up with the plan we've been talking about. Adapt the phasers to for fuel. I was, wondering, I was trying to find a not good online explanation for how this works. Are they just, like, powering up the battery? Like, what are they using here? They, I, obviously, they can't convert that power to fuel, I don't think, unless there are, like, mini crystals. Right, yeah, so I, I don't know what fuel the shuttlecraft uses. Um, so, yeah, my guess would be that they're, they're powering up some kind of main battery. There's later on talk of a separate battery, which, like a car, is used to, for ignition. But, uh, I mean, what, what else would you do? But it does convert it into some kind of fuel, though, as we see later, when Spock ejects said fuel. And then lights it. Yes. Which means, you know, it's like... Yeah, I don't know what's going on there. I don't know either. We'll get there. We'll get there. All right. So Spock picks up uh, picks up everyone's flavor or flavors. Oh my goodness. Spock <laughs> picks up everyone's phasers. He knows the clock is ticking on board the ship, and he lays it out that it's. A it doesn't matter if you're on the ship or left behind on the planet. You're pretty much gonna die. So the ship needs to be able to see us. So uh, Spock, he asks McCoy for his face, or he asks McCoy for his phaser, who hesitates but hands it over. You know, which is odd, because, of course, normally McCoy would be the first guy to be like, yeah, I don't need this. Yeah, exactly. I'm a healer, not a killer. But the ape men. So, uh, yeah, so that was basically what I wrote. I mean, we also had, like, the continued lingering ideas, like, is there going to be a mutiny here? What's going to happen? You know, continue, continues, unfortunately, with the help of McCoy here. Um... <laughs> The second thing I wrote is uh, how unfailing Scott is here, as we've talked about. You know what I mean? He takes the phasers without hesitation, starts, you know. I mean, he, Scott does not stop working in this whole thing. He's just like, I got a job to do. I'm going to do it, you know. So uh, the transporter is finally up and running back on the Enterprise. So uh, they're going to start beaming some search parties down, hoping that they will literally stumble across them. Uh, back on the planet, Cantano now is being chased by one of the ape, ape men. Right. And we sort of have this, like... He's also dropped his phaser. I mean, later on, Spock will pick it up and just, you know, say, hey, deliver this to Mr. Scott. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, again, I, I think we have a case of an engineer who, you know, hasn't had his tactical training recently. Right. May Same not have... training. Yeah, may not have... I know, had a whole lot of this kind of training in the first place. I mean, obviously he's going to have some. You don't issue phasers to people who've never had... Exactly. You know, 
But that doesn't mean that he's necessarily ready for it. Right. So, for example, you know, we're living in a world now where police shootings make the news all the time. <coughs> and very often after the fact, you can look back at these situations and go, well, here's where the training went amiss. Yeah. You know, here's where the problem, um, you know, could have been solved with more training earlier on. If, but, of course, it's got to be the right kind. You have to anticipate what problem Officer Smith is going to have and then give him that kind of training. Because he can have fantastic training for eight other situations, but not this one. Yeah. And still get scared and shoot at somebody he shouldn't have shot at. Or drop his, drop his weapon out of fear. And so, you know, in, in a certain sense, this guy's gotten scared. Stuff has begun to shut down. Right. I mean, you know, one of the problems, which, uh, let's say, Malcolm Gladwell talks about in Blink, he has a, a chapter on a police shooting. There's a lot of narrowing of, of your reasoning capacity, of your ability to make decisions. And I think our poor engineer needed more training before he was put in this situation for which he was simply not yeah. prepared. The one guy who probably is prepared for this because he's also the head of security would be Lieutenant Commander Scott. But he is probably the only guy who could be doing what he's doing on the ship. Exactly. So on the one hand, I can imagine that if Scotty were, you know, the guy standing guard or the guy leading the other guys on a guard patrol, they would have gotten home safely. But of course, the ship never would have gotten out the ground. <laughs> we go to commercial. Uh, uh, again, with that horrible force perspective happening, Kentano dying at the hands of one of the eight men. Back from it, we find that the other crew members have found Kentano's phaser, but no sign of him. Spock hands over Kentano's phaser with his own and says, when Scott is ready to take off, take off if I don't return. Spock then kind of looks around, finds Kentano dead on the rock, slings him over his shoulder, starts heading back to the shuttle, but then spears are thrown at him from all sides. He runs safely back to the ship. That was the most illogical reaction, says Spock. They have no respect for the uh, rational reaction. Uh, Bones yells at him about it, and then Spock returns with, "Well, I cannot help be, I cannot be held accountable for their unpredictability." Yeah, and Bones says, "They were." Go we ahead. we get a little bit into some straw Vulcanism here. Yeah. So the problem with the straw Vulcan is one in which he's so rational that he's like unable to understand emotionality. Whereas, of course, you and I might attempt to be rational and will account for other people's ra ra um, irrationality, their emotionality, their non-rational functioning. And we'll take it into consideration as part of our reasoning process. Spock doesn't do that. And one reason, I think, is that you know the writers are too much focused on contrasting the logical Spock versus the emotional McCoy and his junior officer buddies. Another reason, which I find much more plausible, much less, it takes me out of the story less, is that because Spock rejects that part of himself, because he suppresses it, he has difficulty accessing it when he needs to anticipate somebody else's tactical motivations. Right. So it's not he that he's... let it play. Yeah, it's not just that he's a guy who embraces reason or logic. It's a guy who does it, who gets there 
by suppressing emotion. I mean, I, I, yeah, so I've already suggested that Scotty would be capable of figuring this stuff out. Kirk would be able to figure it out. Both of those guys are T's. One's an engineer, you know, the other guy, very clearly, a thinking man, a scientist. We'll see this when he's fighting the Gorn. He'll figure out that he can, like, concoct a gunpowder on the fly. You know, this is not, this is not something you expect of, of McCoy, right? So, these are thinking guys who can anticipate other people's emotionality because they're not suppressing their own emotionality, but Spock is. So, I, I'm going to bl blame his Vulcanness rather than his logic for his inability to make sense of the tribal nature of these guys. I liked your hypothesis about the uh, about him just not using it enough. So he's just he's just or he's over he's overcompensating for the fact that they're you know he could be able. To, this is like our learning. This is where Spock learns. Right? And this is where he suddenly realizes like okay maybe I don't have all the answers. Right. Um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, so he says I cannot be held accountable for their unpredictability. And Bones returns with they were perfectly predictable. Anyone with feeling may as well admit it, Mister Spock. Your precious lo logic brought them down on us. At which point we get the Spock eyebrow. Mm. Yeah, and the problem. So, like, let's let's say that I, you know, I was there to to advise McCoy on how to make this argument. You don't attack logic; you attack the Vulcan suppression right. of their emotions. There's nothing wrong with logic. The problem here is that Vulcans, like their Romulan buddies are essentially repressive. So the ape-men attack again, or I should say ape-man, since we only ever see one of them. But anyway, moving on. Uh, <laughs> Spock says, uh, well, step by step, as, as I have followed this, I have made the logical reaction, yet two men are dead. And the, the ape-men keep pounding on the ship. Um, Spock is still stuck without a plan. Scott says that they still need another hour or two before they can take off. Back in space, Captain's Log, Stardate 2823.1. Ferris gives us another uh, ticking clock again, reminding us we have just over two hours before we have to leave. Kirk says they'll be uh, searching foot by foot, inch by inch, by candlelight if I have to, till the last possible moment. Remember, I am still in command here. Yes, says Ferris, <laughs> but only for another two hours and 42 minutes. Dun, dun, dun! So here we have the Kirk and his response to authority, right? And this raises the question of what type is Kirk? Now, I've said that Kirk so far, I've said that uh, Kirk so far is, is very clearly a guardian. My reading is that I would call him a guardian entirely, and that later on he tends to get a little bit uh, Mary Sue. He tends to have all the... right whatever he needs to solve, whatever problem the writers throw at him. So far, I think he's very clearly a guardian. He may change over time, not because people change, but because he's just written differently. He's a character, not a person. Other people sometimes will point to situations like this and go, look, he's a rebel. He's an artisan. Artisans don't like authority. He's going to rebel against it. But I've seen plenty of uh, cases in which guardians don't like someone else's authority. They always want to be in charge. So, like, it's a common phenomenon. You see it in driving. You're driving along. You pass somebody. And suddenly he wants to pass you now. Yeah. 
Like, you were going slower than I was going. Why are you trying to pass me again? It's the Guardian's need to be in charge, to be in front. Kirk clearly has that. This is his ship. He's the captain. He does not like someone else being in charge. He chafes against it. Because as the Guardian, he needs to be in charge. And he's the captain. Anything else is, is wrong and has to be combated. <laughs> I think that's the source of his rebelliousness here, rather than the fact that he's an artisan. Although, you know, as we go on, I'm going to keep my eyes open for ways in which he's written differently. But so far, I've seen nothing but Guardian. Back on the shuttle, the five survivors are still being attacked by the eight men, but Spock decides to electrify the exterior of the shuttlecraft, and it chases the eight men off for now. Uh, Spock asks to continue unloading the weight of the ship, including Kentor's body. Another fight ensues as to whether it is safe to offer a true burial for Kentor's. Spock says, uh, not now. But Bowman says, yes, we must do it. If it. Even if it were your body, Mr. Spock, I would offer you a, I would offer you a burial. McCoy starts to calm him down, but Bowman says, no, I'm sick of this machine, referring to Spock. Scott now steps in and, uh, steps in until Spock says... You can have your burial, assuming the creatures will permit it. Back in space, Kirk receives the briefing about the landing about landing party number two. Oh no, one man is dead, one man is injured. Ferris then barges onto the bridge and says, It is now Stardate 2328.3. I am taking command of the ship. And Kirk relents as we go to commercial. Another drama moment. Okay, so at, at this point... We get uh, Kirk very much <laughs> willing to lose other crewmen in search of these crewmen. I, <laughs> right. I feel like Kirk's the kind of guy who would, you know, like lose 12 guys looking for four and then be like, well, finally I found my guys. Mission accomplished. I'm so happy. <laughs> like, you lose 12 guys looking for four. That's crazy. You know, Spock would be like, totally irrational. What were you doing? But I think Kirk is a, the needs of the, of the few could outweigh the needs of the many. Especially when the many are guys who are suited to this task, right? So the people he's sending out to look for his missing crewmen are guys whose job it is to look for other crewmen who've been lost. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. And so, you know, if they die, they were doing Not their duty. Whereas these guys who were lost on this, in the Mirasaki effect, they weren't. They weren't supposed to be stranded on a planet. These are a bunch of engineers and right. scientists, not a bunch of, you know, guys who are survivalists and tactical officers and and so forth. So you do get to see uh, Kirk's, you know, needs of the few can outweigh the needs of the many here. Whereas at the same time, Spock and Ferris, I think, are totally in the opposite camp. Right. Yeah. Definitely. So uh, back from uh, commercial, the supplemental, Captain's Log supplemental says that they have to abandon the search. Back on Talus 8, they have uh, 10 minutes left to lip off, lift off. Spock gives the all clear to bury Kanto's body. Back aboard the Enterprise, Kirk gets the ship ready to go to space normal speed. I don't know what that is. Her just said, hey, no, uh, we, can go to, we can go to warp factors. She even says we're ready for warp work." Warp factors, but Kirk asked for sports, space. Normal so, of course, speed. later on, it's because they can't warp away. That's why. Yeah, I mean, they're basically doing impulse 
power until they can get right. Until and so, readings, you, know, you know, according to the technical manual and so forth, you know, like one half impulse would be kind of like normal. You don't want to go higher than that because the relativity effects get kind of wacky. <laughs> you know, maybe they're actually going one quarter impulse. We don't know because space normal speed is not something that becomes part of the usual Star Trek lexicon. True. But yeah, they're. It's like a lot of things we Yeah, there's. They're either at one quarter or one half impulses. They pull away. And of course, one would understand why you don't necessarily want to go to warp next to some kind of crazy quasar like effect. Yeah. Uh, so they are burying the body, and once again, they are attacked by the crazy ape men. Spock is pinned down by a boulder. He starts waving McCoy and Bowman, Go, go! But they, of course, they go in to rescue him anyway, those crazy Fs. The shuttle then tries to make an attempt to take off, but they're being held down by a dozen or so of the ape men. I don't know. It's hard to tell since we never get to see all of them at the same time. So then they add boosters, which, you know, cuts into their fuel power but gets them away. Spock tells the other two, you should have left him. It was the logical thing to do. But McCoy tells him... <laughs> But McCoy tells him, remind me later to tell me that I'm sick of your logic. A little more back and forth as they discover that there is only one orbit left before it decays and they all burn up in the atmosphere of Talos II. So ends your command, Mr. Spock. Yes, says Spock, my first command. Hard to imagine that he's gotten this far in the service and he's never been commanded so much as an away team before. Right, I'm, yes, I'm sure he's <laughs> commanded probably a few. Uh, Spock ignites the fuel and then dumps it. It seems illogical, but he does it anyway. Uh, and it acts like a flare for the Enterprise to see. Was it, was it illogical? I mean, Mr. Scott, right away, you, you look at his response. He's happy. Yeah, he kind of laughs. Yeah, he's like, great yeah. idea. He just, yeah. you know, whose judgment would I trust in this situation? Who understands what's going on better than Scott? Yeah. McCoy? Kirk? I mean, you know, Kirk maybe. Although Kirk likes to poke at Spock. Which we see at the end of this. Yeah, and he'll he'll often take Ms. McCoy's side just to engage in a little good-natured ribbing. Yes, absolutely. You know, and unlike McCoy, who I think can be unpleasant in the way he ribs uh, Spock, not in the sense that I don't like him, but yeah. in the sense of you're actually being kind of mean. Yeah. If I were Spock, I wouldn't like it. As the viewer, I I can see both sides and I can appreciate both characters. Yes. But yeah, you're you're actually kind of being a little bit mean here. In the same way, earlier on, uh, when Sulu was offering some kind of counter suggestion, when he was challenging the captain a little bit, the captain you know basically told him to follow orders. Yeah. And so, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll get characters who will respond to each other in a way that's not super friendly, like, hey, you're my buddy, uh, you know, let's have coffee later, but it's like, do your job, um, you know, don't backtalk, don't, uh, you know, wh whatever the, the thing is. But the fact that Scotty embraces the flair idea is like, okay, it, it is logical, it is rational. It is the thing to do. And ultimately, nothing succeeds like success. It works. So, you know, the, the big attempt to, like, paint this flair idea as irrational or emotional doesn't work for me. Fair point. I totally see where you're coming from there. 
Kirk calls down. Uh, contact the tra transporter room, he says. Make sure all beams are ready. <laughs> I thought that was really great. That's something we've never heard before. <laughs> Uh, I don't yeah. even know what that means, but he, he says it. <laughs> but uh, we cut back to the uh, we cut back to the the shuttlecraft, as you said, Scott. Even you know, Scott even says it. I I see. Send it up like a like a like a flare. McCoy calls back to Spock, saying, uh, "Well, that was your last decision. Totally human," says McCoy. A shot in the dark, says Spock. That's exactly what I mean, says McCoy. The orbit continues to decay. The shuttlecraft starts to burn up. And boom! The team is transported away. But did they make it? We don't know. Sulu tells us that the ship might have been might have been burned up. What's happening? But then we get a call from the transporter room. Kirk, a little obviously choked up, gives the call and tells them to leave going at warp one. So now we're going at warp one. We're not going at space normal speed anymore. Now we're going warp one again. And how does he know that everybody... Which is so, so slow. But, but also, how does he know that everybody's, like, on the... I mean, what if they would have had to leave somebody behind? He's like, well, we'll take care of them later. I guess they'll survive another two days with the eight men. It'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> Who's on board? Only five guys. Where are the other two? Who cares? No, one. One. Let's go. <laughs> now, you know, there's certainly a need to cut extra dialogue. To, you know, you don't necessarily... Like, imagine we're getting in the car, we're going to drive up to Missouri. You know, there's a lot of chatter that goes on. Oh, you got drinks in the car? Yeah, we got drinks. You got, uh, you know, tunes? Yeah, we got tunes. You got, uh, you know, this? When are we going to stop? I got to use the bathroom. Everyone use the bathroom? Okay. You know, there's a lot of chatter that goes on that you don't want to have in a TV show. Sure. Because it'll be all consumed with, you know, this kind of routine talking and there's no drama. Right. So I, I understand that there's a certain amount of, chatter that we just have to assume took place that we're not watching. We can only hope. <laughs> but it does seem weird when you watch it. You're like, where's the other two guys? <laughs> he doesn't even know. Right. just warping away. We gotta go. We know is the audience, but he doesn't know. So uh, we get some of that back and forth we were just talking about in that final scene. Uh, Kirk says, uh, desperation is a highly emotional state. Now how is that logical? Spock says, logic told me the only thing left to do was to act out of desperation. Logical decision, logically arrived at. Uh, you reasoned it was time for an emotional outburst, says Kirk, giving him a hard time. Spock says, uh, I don't know if I would put it in those terms, but those are the facts. You're not going to admit for once in your life that you created a purely emotional act, says Kirk. No, says Mr. Spock. Captain Kirk follows with, Mr. Spock, you're a stubborn man. And then everyone laughs for like 30 <laughs> seconds. In fact, they laugh, they seem to stop laughing, and then <laughs> yeah, they all exactly. start laughing again. Oh, we haven't stopped filming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like the director was like, no, no, keep laughing, I'm still rolling. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> They're giving him the wave sign. Let's go more, more, I need more. Now, of course, you know, in today's particular, you know, politically correct climate, all this poking at Spock would be, you know, uh, microaggressions all over the place. <laughs> True. Uh, so uh, just some final numbers in this uh, for this episode, like I always do. Opticals alone for this episode were $20,000. Yikes. Uh, I know, right? Uh, total cost for this episode was $232,000. They did go over a couple of days, over time a couple of days. This, this which, is a $2 million episode right? in today's money. 
Exactly. And uh, now for the season, they are over budget. What, 13 episodes in a season? Uh, they are over budget by $51,900. Done. I, I didn't look this up you know, just today to, to compare, but I believe I've read recently that the budget for the the Discovery episodes is like two, two, two million yeah. per. Now the thing is, you're going into it knowing this is Star Trek. Yeah. As opposed to these guys, you know, going, we don't know whether this will be the biggest hit or the biggest miss ever. Right. I've just uh, edited <laughs> episode four where <laughs> apparently DeForest Kelly said that to Roddenberry, so I remember it. Oh, nice. But you can imagine Wait. these guys don't know what they've got, you know? They don't know. <laughs> Well, it's expensive, but it'll pay off in the long run. Right. Whereas, you know, you're doing Discovery, you're like, in the long run, it'll pay off. It's still going to pay off. All the DVD purchases alone. Or on-demand purchases alone. Well, that's it. Any final thoughts you have on this episode? So, you know, I talked a lot about the the Myers-Briggs stuff. The guy, you know, the fact that I think uh, Spock is using extroverted thinking and McCoy is using the extroverted feeling. I don't know what particular feeling functions uh, Bomer had or any of the other characters uh, other than uh, Mr. Scott, who I think is very clearly an ESTJ. But there's also two other things to keep in mind about these characters. One is that Spock has a philosophy, right? And McCoy and these other guys probably also have philosophies about how to live. So in addition to their functioning, they've got a philosophical approach to life. And then under-referenced, but I think always you know something we have to pay attention to, is that Spock has an alien sensibility. He has alien conventions, his understanding of what is appropriate, what is inappropriate, and of course, you know, today we hear things about, uh, you know, you travel overseas and you know, what about your sunglasses, uh, you know, offering things to people in, in their left hand or, you know, all there's lots of sensibility about, you know, how it's easy to give offense in a foreign culture. And Spock, in this sense, is working in this environment. He's, he's in a foreign culture. And to the rest of the crew who might share Earth culture, Spock is the foreigner. Right. Who they're don't understand and instead of going we don't understand him he's an alien he's got a lot of weird habits plus he's got that you know that philosophy that's weird you know instead the focus the problem as i see it is entirely on their functioning they're responding subconsciously to each other's functioning so you know freud as i think i mentioned early on in the in the series you know imagine most of our functioning is unconscious in terms of the ego, the superego, and the id, he imagined that only the, the ego was largely conscious and that the superego you know, had a piece of consciousness to it that we were aware of the benefit of being moral and following rules and so forth. But that the id was entirely subconscious. We weren't even aware of it. And that in the same way, these characters aren't aware of their functioning, nor do even Mr. Psychologist, you know, Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy doesn't seem to be aware that, you know what I do when I poke at Spock? I'm I'm responding to the fact that my unconscious function doesn't like his functioning or like 
whatever theory he wants to use to go, yeah, this is entirely a personality problem and not a, there's anything actually wrong with Spock problem. And then on top of it, because of course Spock is highly competent, but the other thing is that they'll redirect their complaints onto his philosophy, right? So there's a lot of blaming Spock's philosophy, Surak's logic, for you know what really amounts to, we don't like the fact that you're not very emotional. And only part of that is uh, is the philosophy. Part of it is alien, and part of it is he's a TE. Well, there you have it—a nice Myers Briggs breakdown of the uh, episode Galileo Seven. But hey, what better way to talk about it? Honestly, I mean, getting into the heads of these characters, talking about the way, or you know, missing, as you said, the way that they uh, are not communicating basically they're not understanding how each other uh thinks or as as has developed is i i just think it's the easiest way to talk about it so it made the most sense to me and on that note that'll be the end of another episode galileo 7 next week oh my gosh kirk gets court-martialed whatever is going to happen teaser teaser <laughs> well, that'll do it for this week. As always, my name is Matt in Austin saying farewell. and In Houston, say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. There we go, and we will see you all next week for another great episode of The Brothers Trek About. Trek About.